So here we are again, time for Dharma talk. And my talk tonight entails a section on how to work with challenging emotions. That's somewhere in the middle of my talk. And as I'm sitting here and waiting for this talk to start, guess what? I'm experiencing a challenging emotion. And I'm thinking, hey, we are walking what we teach. So I'll walk you through my process. So my challenging emotion is I'm nervous. I'm nervous to be sitting here. So different layers. So one is, one way we work with that is we have something that we call triangle of awareness. And those of you who've done MBSR, you're aware of this. So what we have, we have thoughts come as words or images. We have sensations in the body. That is what comes in through the senses. So hearing, feeling, seeing, touching. And we have emotions. And emotions, we... Um, define as, or what we're looking here for, is what it feels like in the body. So, start with what it feels like in the body. So, one thing I notice is what it makes, it makes my voice a little bit shaky, or it at least feels that way. So, it, it's a little bit like nervousness in my voice, I notice that. You might not notice that, but I do. <laughs> my heart rate is up. So that is something that, if you're trained as a body therapist, you would see that at my jugulars here. They go like, dung, 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 dung. I feel that more here. And I feel constriction in my chest. And I feel like a certain like nervousness, shakiness all over my body. So heart rate is up. My alertness level is up to a point where I just feel a a heightened alertness on one level, but I can also feel like the beginning of this fogginess, right, that sets in, like when I get more anxious, I can come to a point where I freeze and then I don't know anything anymore. I can't access like my prefrontal cortex anymore. So I'm not there yet. <laughs> uh, humor helps, humor really helps to bring stuff down. So that is what anxiety feels like for me in the body. I also feel a little bit hot. My palms are a little bit sweaty. So definitely I feel like sympathetic arousal in my entire nervous system. Um, what I also am aware of, I could choose to go to this. I'd rather not because I know that is not helpful. I could go into the thoughts that are coming with this. The thoughts that are going on right now is like, I haven't prepared enough. I will make a fool out of myself. I'll be sitting here and I don't get the order right. I have prepared way too much. Or no, actually I've prepared way too little. I have way too much information for you. Or way too little. Or it's not coherent, it's not in order. The entire like the thoughts are going like this, right? So, very important don't go there. I'm saying, Christiana, don't <laughs> go there. Because what will that do? Right? 
it just ping-pongs back and forth, right? When I believe this, and of course at this point those emotions are charged, they are not like, like, oh, there's a glass of water, or like, what did I have for dinner, right? Thoughts that right now they're kind of neutral. No, they're thoughts that mean something to me, right? There's something at stake, and my identity is somehow woven into this whole process. So I can feel that, I don't want to go there. Some aversion here, that's okay, so I don't want to go there right now. So I stay with this, what I feel in the body. And just to give you an update, I feel a little bit calmer now. (laughs) Um, I've survived like the first three minutes, I guess. Um, I notice my heart rate's going down. I feel more engaged, I feel lighter, I feel more uh, more clarity in my head, so that's good. (laughs) So, but what I also do, what works really well for me is um, the process of self-compassion with this. So self-compassion is, has three components. First one is mindfulness, is awareness, noticing, oh, this is what's going on right now, mm, anxiety, right? That's happening, so that is the awareness. I know that this is going on. The second step is um, shared humanity, right? So I can look into this and I can make it not just about me, because if I would make it just about me, that would be friggin' scary, right? Because that would be just me, and you're all totally chilled out there, like nobody of you knows what anxiety is like, it's just me, and it's horrible, right? Because I don't feel seen, I don't feel understood. So shared humanity does two things. What it does, it gets me away from this identification, making a self out of, this is just me, I'm an anxious person, and therefore there's something wrong with me because I experience that on a regular basis and I shouldn't be experiencing that with all blah, blah, blah. That's the story again, right? And then what it also does, it breaks this circle of being identified with myself. And what it does... So it moves from self-pity, which is all about me, poor me, why am I experiencing this, this isn't fair, I mean, right? So that's what usually the mind goes into when it's all about me. If it moves into self-compassion, it says like, of course, of course, of course I'm feeling that way. And this is normal to feel that way in this situation. And Thousands, millions of people know exactly the same feeling. And I can make that not just about like thousand millions of people out there, like you know what anxiety feels like, right? And then suddenly I go like, oh, we're in this together. Do you know anxiety? Yes. Do you know anxiety? Yes. Does it feel like this? Does it resonate to how I described that? Yes. You experience that in one form or other, Right? So what I can say in this case is, to, I can say we've done that a number of times, is this is what anxiety feels like, right? In that way, it's not personal. It's not about me, Christiana, being an anxious person. This is anxiety arising in this moment. It's not personal. And what I can also do is I can really open up and share that and basically hold hands with all of you like my brothers and sisters who all know what it's like to be sitting up front on a stage or maybe another 
version for you and feeling anxious. And that relaxes me because what it does, it makes me one of you. It doesn't make it the me and other, which is where we usually get lost, right? It's just me. Nobody gets this or people don't have this. And this is isolating. And I believe just for mammals, just with our history, this is one of the scariest things that we can experience, to feel isolated, right? If we lose the contact, the support of our group, we're done, right? If your group doesn't accept you, if you're a mammal and your group doesn't accept you, you're dead, right? So I think part of that fear of being other, and we all know this, we all have our fears, and this is often like where we are in pain so much, because we do feel isolated, we don't feel part of the group, or we don't feel people understand this or get this. And that can be about something as, I mean, relatively small as this, and it can be about having cancer, or being gay, or being trans, or being like the only black person in the room, or it could be about anything, right? Anything. So we and other. And the self-compassion practice really allows us to say like, and it's normal to feel that way. And then the third step is kindness, self-kindness. How can I bring kindness to the situation? And in a way, I think, or for me at least, to doing the first two steps, that's already practicing kindness for myself, saying like, yep, it's here, there's nothing wrong with it, and everybody knows this too. So we're in this together. And what we then sometimes do in the practice of self-compassion is we can use a word, we can use a phrase, like, may I be kind to myself? May I not close down? May I take care of myself. May I care for myself, right? Or it could be something, I mean, we've been working with the body all week. We could, it could be a gesture. We're so afraid of touching ourselves, and I think that's so sad, right? And so sometimes, I mean, if you've been around here long enough, you probably know that we often, like for the metta practice, we suggest that to put just a hand over the heart, maybe two hands, and just feel that. And there are many different ways to do this, right? So what I was doing before you came in here, right, because that's kind of obvious, I'm sitting here like... (laughs) Um, (laughs) I don't want it to be so obvious, so we're teaching this at the um, Greater Los Angeles VA to veterans, and like tough guys don't always like to be seen like this, right? Some love it, but not everybody does. So what we have come up with is how about you hold your hand, right? You have your hands in your lap and nobody can see that you're actually holding your own hand, right? Or you put a hand on an arm. There, there. I'm here. You're not alone. (laughs) It's hard right now, is it? Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that is what I was doing. Like while I was waiting for you to come back in, I was sitting here and holding my own hand. We're so hardwired for touch. And I'm so amazed about what the body can do. And I just recently read an article about that they have found new fibers in the skin, 
right? The skin is an amazing organ and they found new fibers that seem to be just for supportive touch. They seem just to fire when skin is touched with a particular pressure and it's stroked in a particular frequency. So this wouldn't do it. <laughs> this would. This would. But it only works if that is something that we want, right? So if that is like our old aunt or something, or somebody who we don't want us to hug us or kiss us or stroke us, then it doesn't fire, right? Isn't that amazing? Not about the ant, but um, <laughs> about um, the fibers. We are hardwired for supportive touch. And I'm still waiting for a study to come out that shows that giving ourselves supportive touch has a similar um, physiological reaction than if somebody we love does that. You know, if somebody we love touches our hand and there's a very particular positive response in the body, a relaxation, a sense of safety that comes up, oxytocin being released. And I don't know like why somebody isn't, hasn't done that test yet. It can't be that hard. <laughs> but <laughs> right now it's not out yet. So, or not that I know of. Okay, so now I'm feeling a lot more relaxed. Thank you for being with me on that one. I hope it was helpful for your own working with challenging emotions here. So, um, you've heard that um, I have a background in medicine. Um, I have a kind of unusual story how I ended up here <laughs> being a physician trained in Germany. Um, don't want to go into that tonight. Um, just because of t because of time restraints, um, and it's not about me this talk. And it, um, but what I want to talk about is um, a particular way that might be helpful for you to see how physicians work with body parts, or how we see the body, and it can be helpful in our practice. So. <coughs> I started being very fascinated with body parts um, from a very young age. So I remember when I was, I try to remember like what age it was, probably around 10, I started to collect animal skulls. And I thought they're so beautiful. There's something for me very aesthetical about like a skull of any, any, any mammal actually, including the human very fascinating and so I used to stroll through the woods behind our house with my dog and then I would really look for skeletons and I would look for skulls and I would bring them home and collect them and later when I was a medical student I was able to actually purchase a real human skull and I love that skull I still have it of course and there's just something so, on so many different levels, meaningful. So one, of course, being a physician, but then also being a practicing Buddhist, where it's a lot about impermanence and death. And yes, that's where we're heading. Don't we ever forget that? And I don't say that in a morbid way. It's just like, I like, wake up, wake up, don't miss this. Don't miss this. Don't find yourself lying on your deathbed and going like, oh my God, how did that happen, right? So, 
the skull is still in Germany, and I didn't want to go through customs with it here and answer strange questions and the risk <laughs> losing it. <laughs> now it's a real skull. Like, no, no, I just like it. Like, hmm, yeah, all right. <laughs> so, um, as to just being detached around body parts, I did not grow up with that. So I remember as a pre-med student, I did a um, rotation where I did the practicum in an internal ward of our local hospital. And internists are not very invasive doctors. So they sometimes poke like lines into you and they usually they're just prescribed description drugs. And, but um, sometimes what they do is they um, place uh, pacemakers. Right? Anybody has a pacemaker here? So, pacemakers is so just to make sure that your heart rate is going uh, the way it should, if it doesn't do it normally and medication doesn't help. So, and it's not a big surgery. It's like you make an incision that big, you make that up here, right? Not a lot of blood. So that was the first surgery that I observed. And they made that cut, and I basically went out cold. <laughs> um, so I had like this whole like... Um, sounds in my ears, I felt nauseous, the knees were starting to give, and then somebody just like yanked me outside, put me on a bench there, and I was just like hanging there with my head between my knees, and I'm thinking that, wow, that's a great start into being a physician. Um, you get used to it. <laughs> um, and then a couple of years later, as a medical student, we have spent, of course, many years um, dissecting corpses. That is just how you learn anatomy. So it's not just from a book, and I don't know how they do it these days, but back then it would be just corpses from people who had uh, donated their bodies to science or to medicine or explicitly for medical students to learn anatomy. And I remember the first time we went in there... Um, we were very shy and anxious, and there was something like a sense of starting some sacred work. Um, so the cor corpses were still complete at that point. They were naked. They were like a very unreal yellow-white color. I mean, they're German, being in Germany, or Caucasian corpses. Um, and it's pretty unlike a real body, honestly, so the color and the consistency of the flesh was really off, and that is because what they do is they um, take the blood out and they put like a mixture of formaldehyde in there so that in, in order for the body not to rot. But the smell is horrible, and um, like the like first or second year medical students, they are known by that smell, so door opens and like, people they will actually move away from you in the cafeteria when you walk in. There's just no way you get that. You put out your gloves, disposable gloves, of course, you shower, but it's like this smell is just so sticks to you. It's just it's a it's kind of a stigma and but it's also like a badge of honor. Like you have to you own this. You are this is part of what you do. The sense of sacredness was left, was gone pretty soon, and of course it became routine to do that. Um, but we became really thoroughly familiar with all the body parts. Uh, their German and Latin names, their location, their function, their beginnings and endings. Um, and it's a good thing, because it also really instilled an awe in us. So we're not, we're not doing only anatomy, but we were also doing physiology and biochemistry. So all these things, so, so they, they have the organs, but then how do they function? What, what, 
what is their job and how amazing that is, what it does. And right, we're, that's part of what we're doing here. We're really trying to give you a sense of like, this is crazy, amazing what these different body parts are doing. And with some of you, you, know, you don't even know that you have this body part, right? So what a chance given away if, to be amazed about something because <laughs> you don't even know you have it, right? So, but then of course there is this discrepancy that we also work with or this dichotomy, I should rather say, between on one hand, this is part of a body of a whole human being and then on the other hand, this is a body part, right? And I remember um, as I was going, I'm an I'm a OBGYN by training and at some point in my training, my best friend was having a baby and um, I delivered the baby. And then after the baby was delivered, it wasn't so easy, so we had to do a vacuum extraction and cut an episiotomy. And then after the baby was there, baby was healthy, everybody was happy, I stitched my friend back up, hugged her, and we were chatting. And afterwards, her husband came up to me and saying, like, what are you doing? Like, how can you do that? She's your best friend. And you're just have your hands in her genitals and you're putting stitches in. This is just disgusting. And he was and <laughs> and then I realized that of course, being the husband, he had never experienced her genitals just as anatomical parts, right? And I totally get that. But for me, as the doctor, what was really interesting is that moment, she was not my friend. She was just material, kind of, I was working on. And that is good. That is good. So at least in the surgeon, uh, the people who do surgery, so the um, specialties that do surgery, you actually want your doctor to see you as material and not as a whole person. Right? We have a role, I mean, if you can have both, great. But if I had the, I mean, if I had the choice between the physician who like totally loves me, I don't want them to do surgery on me. We actually, in Germany, we had a rule that said, you never do complicated procedure or surgery on a person you love or somebody you know really well. Because the complication rate goes really up, right? Because as soon as something happens, you can't think clearly anymore. You don't think about like, okay, so what do I do? Steps one, two, three. Or you can't access your whole experience because you go like, oh my God, this is my friend. This is my partner. This is, right? And then you're screwed, right? Um, so there is this, yeah, working with both working with both. And I think that is also what we're asked to do here. To see at times when we work with the body parts, to see like, yes, this is my leg, right? And the love and the attachment and the awe of this, that this actually is my leg. This is pretty amazing, are these legs. And at other times to also see the other side. And this is just, those are just legs doing their work. And we move back and forth between those.
Another thing that I also, of course, noticed being a gynecologist very acutely in this list is that the genitals and reproductive organs are missing. And, um, and I just want to name this because those body parts are so important. They carry often a lot of emotional charge, right? There are often areas where there are a lot of memories about pleasure, love, but also hate, disgust, of pain and hurt, stories of power, submission, violation, shame, right? So they're very loaded. And I think in that way, it might be good that they're not in there. Or that we can say, like, if this is something you want to look at, do that when it feels right for you to do that. So that it's not like we're marching through this in the order that we have, and boom, now you have to feel into that area. I think so that is actually a really kind way to practice with areas that are like, or potentially, I'm not saying they have to, of course, um, potentially, yeah, very challenging to work with. Yeah. Um, Another reason that I believe they're not in there is we have to remember that this practice comes out of a monastic celibate tradition. And I would suspect that this was practiced a lot uh, amongst the young monks, like horny young men, who um, respond very easily to visualizations, right? So there might be a good reason to just, no, 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 no. We're not going there, okay? So let's just pretend that doesn't exist, right? Okay, so why are we doing the 32-part practice? So maybe this is very obvious to you, um, but it might be helpful to just say a little bit more again about this. Why are we doing this particular practice? Um, so practice that we're doing here is called vipassana, or insight meditation practice. So that is one definition is seeing things how they really are, being clearly. So why do we want to see things how they really are? Because it brings us freedom. It brings us peace. Some people might use the word enlightenment. That still, after all these years of practice, is a very... Um, theoretical word for me, but I can very relate to freedom. Oh, freedom. <laughs> Peace. That is, I have an experience of that. I have a visceral longing for that. And I know some people have a visceral longing for enlightenment. I just don't. So in a way, it's more like what you call it, what helps you to really connect with this. Like, what is that that you want? If you could have anything in the world, what would that be? For me, it would be that peace, that freedom. And I have moments of that. And this is what the practice really brings. It brings more and more moments of that. So this is not something that is there like the rainbow at the end of the horizon. And if you're lucky, you'll get there. No, no. What we're practicing, it can be here right now in this moment. So, quote that I love from the scriptures is, it says, just as the big ocean has but one taste, the taste of salt, so my teachings have but one taste, the taste of freedom. So if it doesn't taste of freedom, 
why practice it? So why I practice is, and I don't know about you, but I don't like the feeling like being a puppet on a string or being like a slave to my reactions, um, to my habits, to my being on autopilot and thinking like, like how, how did I get here? Like, what did I just say? Really? Did I just do that? Uh, I don't like that. Um, especially if it's something that's not good for me or it's not good for the other person. And I don't like this feeling of not being able to make a choice. And very often, like these states where I'm caught, they don't feel like I have a choice, right? I don't really decide to make a mean remark to my partner or to yell at my kids. It's just, it's just out, right? Somebody pushes my buttons and bam, right? So practice helps us to notice that, oh, buttons being pushed. (laughs) Connecting with all the people who know what it feels like to have their buttons pushed. (laughs) And then have a little bit of a pause or this gap where you can make a choice. Saying like, "Mm mm-hmm, and I'll shut my mouth. I'm not saying something even though I really feel like turning you, right? So, as we sit here and work with the mind, or I should say, rather, with the hindrances in the first couple of days, that's often what we notice most, is like really the mental and emotional states that hinder us from seeing things clearly. And maybe at this point in the retreat, you've had moments where suddenly they were gone. Right? So often we practice the hindrances by noticing the hindrances. Like we notice aversion or we notice restlessness. How about noticing the absence of aversion? Like, oh, it's gone. Wow, that feels pretty good. Or the absence of restlessness, the absence of sleepiness. Right? Because that is also a way to learn about it. Like, oh, it feels amazing if it's not here. And I can see more clearly when the hindrances are getting less. Right? Like the sky being overcast and overcast with hindrances and I can't see the blue sky and it can be to a point where I forget that there even if a, that, that there even is a blue sky right so coming from Berlin I tell you there are weeks sometimes months where you never see the sun and you can at times forget that there even is a sun and you get moody yeah so Mind comes down as we do this, and we can see more clearly how things are. And then a definition of happiness, or peace, or freedom, or whatever you want to call it, is happiness is the uncompromising cooperation with reality. How's that? Happiness is the uncompromising cooperation with reality. So you're not fighting, you're not clinging, in this moment, This is what it's like. And it doesn't mean that at some point you act. That's not what it says. But that is another step. So what we're being asked is to be here with what is arising in a non-judgmental way. And then see what happens as we stop fighting that what is already here. It's already here. So what are you doing when you're fighting it? What happens? 
And this is really a cause of investigation to notice. So there's something that you don't like, and then you judge yourself, or you have negative feelings around that, you try to push it away, there's a lot of aversion. What happens to the, the state of unpleasantness? Does it get worse? Does it get better? Does, is it more neutral? And this, these are really questions that we ask you to bring into your meditation. Ask yourself, what happens when you bring in this extra layer of, of judgment or aversion to what's already here, right? So the more we look into w- this, what we see is more and more clearly is what we call the three characteristics. So we see that there's a potential of stress or unsatisfactoriness or outright suffering in pretty much any situation, right? If it's not here now. And even like the most pleasant situations, guess what? Second characteristic, they will change. And then you might suffer. Where's this joyful moment that you had? You felt so peaceful this, moment, uh, this morning. Where is it, right? And is there a sense of regret or wanting to have it back or striving to get back there, right? So first one, stress, and things change. So we say like the change is the only constant. <laughs> and then the last one's a little bit trickier. Um, the more we look into this, the less we can find a solid self or a soul that is unchanging. So the three characteristics, so in the Buddhist terminology, we call them dukkha, anicca, and anatta. So the first one is being just suffering, or stress, right? It's, it's often like this moment, like even in the most happy moments, and it's not against happy moments at all. We all love those, right? But there is this, we know it will change. It, we know it won't last. And we see more clearly that everything that is conditioned by causes is, will change as conditions change. So there's no way around that, right? So there is, things will always change. There's nothing that will stay the same. And then the third one is really the anatta, the non-self, that can be a little bit harder to really experience it. But once we do, really a sense of freedom can arise from that. Because there is a sense of freedom in not having to make it all about me. Because very often what we do is we are focusing on what's not working or what's wrong, right? And then what we do is we make that into our identity. So a good example is when we have recurring challenging emotions, right? So often what we say is, so like let's say, coming back to my example with anxiety. So you might have noticed that I phrased this is there is anxiety here, right? Because often what we say is, I'm anxious. And if I say I'm anxious quite a lot, what does my mind do? It makes us into, I'm an anxious person. And I don't like to be an anxious person. I judge myself for being an anxious person. Because when it's really me, right, and it could be with other emotions as well, then suddenly there's a lot more at stake. If it's about me and my core, if this is who I am, compared to like, yeah, this is an anxious moment, right? Because that is more really like experiencing weather. 
If we believe in the change, that things change, what will happen is, it's here, and we know it will change. We're not taking the rain personally, we don't take the storm personally, we just experience this, we get wet, right? At times we need to look for shelter, and we know it will pass. And it can be really helpful to look at emotions more in that way. There's more freedom around this. This is a moment of anxiety. This is what anxiety feels like. That's it. It's not pleasant, I'm not saying that, but it's very different from saying like, yeah, here I am, the deficient person experiencing this horrible deficient thing again. So what we're practicing more and more as we're doing this with the body parts is we can see um, more, like this is really, we have all these different parts. And of course there's a little bit more to this, but this is just like what makes a car, all the different parts. And we had uh, some other examples around that. And then it's more like naming your car, like racer or something. Uh, <laughs> my kids, um, I have a black Prius, that's like the most common car in uh, Santa Monica. <laughs> and my kids named it Totoro. And so we call Totoro, it's after uh, one of our favorite movies from um, Hayao Miyazaki, <laughs> my neighbor Totoro. And it was very funny when I moved here. Um, I was very confused, so coming here from Germany, and English was pretty good, but I moved here, and I saw all these body shops around. <laughs> and I was really thinking, like, I mean, the only body shop that I knew was, like, this um, cosmetic line, right? The body shop where you get, like, I mean, I loved that as a teenager. You get, like, your lotions and your lip gloss and all of that. And so I came here, body shops, and they were really run down, a lot of metal around, and they're just like... Physiotherapists, massage people, and um, and then I learned that people do body work on cars, and that really made me look a little suspicious at people introducing themselves as body workers to me. <laughs> Until I got like, no, they're just they're body workers and body workers, like car repairmen, and then people who actually work on human bodies. <laughs> So what we do see is we start to see body less personally. This is just cartilage. This is but just body hair doing its job, right? And of course we have a story. And we also want to hold that story tenderly, right? So we keep repeating this. Their loving kindness practice is really, really important to be kind with that because there are often there is a lot of hurt and shame and stories behind that. And we want to look at those stories. And at the same time as to just loosen our grip, because we can have a grip both ways. We can grip things too tightly in a positive way, but we can also grip them too tightly in a negative way. Like, oh, I love this so much, this is mine, and it, there's not a lot in my youth, it should not ever, ever go, right? It does, of course, right? Or, I'm so aversive to this, but aversive, aversion brings just the same amount of tension to this, right? Go away, go away, go away, right? And I'm really bringing more energy into it and making the suffering worse. So, and it's really the question, so what is that actually? So what makes a body part mine? Like, what, what is that that it makes me woo over it or take really good care of it or not so good care? 
So maybe you love your new haircut, but what about the hair on the floor? That was just yours a couple of minutes ago. And you really love what's back up here. We don't love what's down there. You don't love the hair in the shower drain. That's disgusting, right? <laughs> But just minutes before, it was something that you shampooed and combed and glistened and volumed and all of this. And it's so funny, and this is a little ridiculous story, but some retreat, I... It's not like all the retreat centers like provide you with all the shampoo and all that stuff in the shower. So I was at a retreat and I didn't bring a shampoo. So I asked the retreat manager, could you get me shampoo? She said, sure, right? So practitioner herself, she came back, she brought me shampoo that said like high volume. And I noticed, what does she say about my hair? <laughs> my hair needs high volume. Like, you're judging my hair, that's, of course, I, I'm judging my hair, right? So, but it, body parts, right? Body parts, um, head hair. <laughs> Another little bit more drastic story is, so, like, when does it actually stop being yours? So, at one rotation, I was assisting um, the amputation of a lower leg of a person who um, was a chain smoker. So he had gangrene on the foot and he couldn't save it anymore. And I remember viscerally that moment the leg was detached. I was holding the leg and I was detached and suddenly there was a <coughs> this moment and I immediately felt nauseous and I kind of let it slip on the operation table. And one of the nurses had to carry it off. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And the surgeon thought that was funny, right? I, I didn't. I just wasn't cool enough at that point. So what we're doing here is not easy. To do this, to look at the body, to look at all these places where it's challenging, where there might have been hurt, where there might have been confusion, where there might be a lot of cultural baggage around that, it's, it's really hard. And this is why we're doing this together. This is why we're doing this together. This is why the, um, the third refuge is the refuge of Sangha, a community. Right? So An Lamat says, the writer An Lamat says, my mind is like a bad neighborhood. I'd rather not go there alone. <laughs> And I think we could just as well say, like, my body is like a bad neighborhood. I'd rather not go there alone. So we're doing this together. Right? We're doing it mentally, but we're all doing that. So we're all reflecting on the small intestines and we're reflecting on the stomach and we're doing this together. We probably wouldn't be doing this at home. I wouldn't be doing this at home. Bob would do that at home. But <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and one of the best antidotes is, or of the five hindrances is to be with wise friends and suitable conversations. So to be with people who are doing similar work and to listen to, hopefully, this is a suitable conversation. <laughs> um, just checking the time. I have two hours, right? <laughs> um, so as we are going into, so we mentioned a couple of times, this is the first foundation of mindfulness, the body. Body parts is one part of it. But what also happens is 
the other foundations arise out of this practice. So this is the base, this is where we're starting. And Mary Grace named this morning the feeling tones, so the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. So experience comes in three flavors, right? Um, The third foundation is contemplation of the mind, so the thoughts and the emotions. Have you noticed that thoughts and emotions come up when you contemplate the body? Yeah, of course, right? And then number four is contemplation of some of the central aspects of the Buddhist teachings, like the five hindrances or like the seven factors of awakening, which I probably won't get to tonight. That was the topic of my talk. Um, (laughs) The Four Noble Truths, which (laughs) Mary Grace mentioned, um, and the Noble Eightfold Path. So what we're doing here is we're doing a progressive deepening of the teaching that really starts with feeling your skin or feeling your back muscles, right? It's all in here, the fathom-long body. We don't have to go anywhere else. So, um, (laughs) I can't help myself to tell this here. So you might have heard this. So emotions, just let's talk a little bit about emotions and emotional thoughts, and then we'll probably, that's as far as we get tonight. So you guys are exceptional. You're really heroes, you know that. Like what you're doing is very rare, and I'm sure that some of you have heard at home when you said like, oh, I'm going on a seven-day silent meditation retreat, people thought you had lost it. Right, anybody? (laughs) Yep, yep. Mm -hmm. So you're doing this for a week. So here's a hilarious piece of research um, from the University of Virginia. So they did a series of experiments to... See, like, how are people doing when you leave them alone just with their thoughts and you take all their distractions away? So, what they did is they did a number of experiments with college students, right? So, and they said, okay, between 6 and 15 minutes, we put you into a room, and then we just see, then we ask you how that is for you. Hated it, hated it, right? So, um, well, about 50% said like they didn't enjoy the experience very much. Um, 90% admitted that their mind wandered at least a little. You're getting co- good company. So then the researchers thought maybe it's the lab that turned people off. So let's have them do that at home. They did the same thing at home, same experience, maybe slightly worse, same, same result. And I thought maybe it's the college students. Right, they're really like all with their gadgets. They are just can't be with their thoughts anymore. Let's do that with normal people, right? So <laughs> what they did is so went to the local church, they went to the farmer's market, gathered some people, did the same experiment again, same result, right? People don't like to be with their thoughts. So, or their emotions, right? Of course, not just the thoughts. So then they thought, hmm, okay, they, they say they don't like it, but how bad is it really? And then, so what they did before they put people, sent people into the room again, they asked them a questionnaire, things they like and don't like. So like, you like ice creams, hot showers, doing the dishes, picking up dog poop, and how much do you like mild electrical shocks? <laughs> and then a subset of questions <laughs> asked about, what were you willing to do or pay to avoid those things that you don't like? Right? So like somebody else picks up the poop or you... How much would you pay in order not to be shocked? Would you pay $5 to avoid an electrical shock? Of course, right? Yeah, like who wants to be shocked? Okay, check. So, Okay, now into the room, be alone for 15 minutes, and just I look around, and there's a little gadget on the table that you could shock yourself with that, but 
You don't, really don't have to. This is really just part of the interior design. <laughs> and then <laughs> left them alone. 15 minutes we're talking here, right? So people in a room alone with like this little electrical thing there. What do you think happened? Yep. So 67% of the men shocked themselves. <laughs> and those were only the people who had just said that they would pay money not to be shocked, right? <laughs> so the ones who really like being shocked, they didn't, they took them in another group, right? Um, one, and that was, an, uh, that was treated as an outlier, did it 190 times. So. <laughs> 25% of the women used the shocker at least once, right? So that makes sense. And men are just more dramatic and they need more. <laughs> um, isn't that amazing? So here you are, you do this for <laughs> seven days, and sometimes maybe you wish you had something to shock yourself out of your sleepiness or this funky story that you've been in or just to change the playlist in your head that you didn't ask for, and here it is, right? And so John Milton writes in Paradise Lost, the mind is its own place, and in itself can make heaven of hell and hell of heaven. So that's what we're doing here. So, I'll just take a moment here. So what we're looking at, or what we're looking you to look at, and what of course is our own practice, is everything. Everything. Mindfulness doesn't care what it is mindful of. Mindfulness just has this capacity like a flashlight. It shines on it. And then discrimination has to come in. Those are the first two of the seven factors of awakening. <laughs> discrimination comes in, which says like, oh, it's like this, or this is helpful, or this is not helpful. But we ha are asked to show up for our full experience, to not pick and choose. Pick and choosing that doesn't work. We've all tried that. We've all tried that. It's not working. So what we do is we look at everything. So, and you might have noticed this, you might have noticed very beautiful things here that you normally don't pay attention to, right? It could be something very small. Iris Murdoch writes, people from a planet without flowers would think we must be mad with joy the whole time to have such things around us. So what is that that you have? That if you wouldn't have that, you would really miss it. And can you be joyful of that now? Not once you've lost it, right? And we're also asked to show up for what is difficult. To be really willing, and that takes really intention, to be willing to tolerate to allow, to maybe even embrace that which is hard and which is uncomfortable. We can make it go away, sure, go ahead and do that. But there are many moments where we can't do this, and this is the training that we're doing. And that will, over time, really allow more space, more freedom, more equanimity. And 
Maybe I end with uh, this Rumi poem about the hard work that we're doing. Your grief for what you've lost lifts a mirror up to where you are bravely working, expecting the worst you look. And instead, here's the joyful face you've been wanting to see. Your hands opens and closes and opens and closes. If it were always a fist or always stretched open, it would be paralyzed. Your deepest presence is in every small contracting and expanding. The two as beautifully balanced and coordinated as bird wings. Thank you. Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.